Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this conversation, recorded in October of 2020, I speak with an amazing young woman, Britt Ray. Britt has a PhD in science communication. She's got a TED Talk that has been viewed by over 80,000 people titled How Climate Change Affects Your Mental Health. And her field of expertise that we cover in this conversation quite a bit is eco-anxiety and eco-grief. She's working on a book called Generation Dread, and she's got an amazing newsletter that I highly recommend called Gen Dread Newsletter. Enjoy. Well, Britt, welcome to Post Doom conversations or regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief grounding and gratitude it's really good to be here thank you thanks well i first encountered you only a few months ago i forget where i first learned of your writings on uh, your your blog gen dread and uh immediately realized wow here's a young woman who really gets it and is involved in helping people to cope with not just cope but to process uh, our times, the scariness, the, all the feelings that arise, grief, anger, frustration, depression, and the rest of it. Um, and then to what this series is about is helping people to move through whatever emotions they have to move through to be involved at whatever scale and uh, 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 local dimensions that they can to make a real difference and to still have joy and, uh, and gratitude, uh, even in the midst of contracting, collapsing times, which is not easy. So I'd like to uh, invite you, as I've been doing all my guests in this series, because there will be plenty of people who aren't familiar with you, they've not yet heard you, read you, or anything else, sort of help us get you. Like, uh, say, and don't be bashful, like, help us get what you're proud of, most proud of, what you do, what you're passionate about, and then what you're particularly committed to or concerned about these days. Sure. So I call myself a science storyteller for the better part of a decade now, I've been producing and hosting radio and television shows, programs with places like the BBC and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in my home country of Canada. And um, I'm very attracted to trying to make sense of the ethical and social implications of emerging science and technology. I've spent a lot of time looking at synthetic biology, which is kind of genetic engineering writ large and all of the messy um, dilemmas that that can produce for us as we're trying to responsibly shepherd the technology into the world. And there's, you know, kind of corporate and innovative um, forces driving it at a certain pace. I did my PhD in science communication, looking at the function of emotion in uh, science communication about this field, synthetic biology. But more recently, I've turned to the climate crisis, the climate and wider ecological crisis. Now, this isn't a new interest of mine. You know, I studied biology in my undergrad way back in the day, and I've always been passionate about um, the sixth mass extinction that humans are driving. I, That's an interesting way to say it. I've always been passionate about the sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I'm, I'm comfortable with grim statements like that. I yeah, that's right. Exactly. No, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a book um, which came out just in 2017 about de-extinction, which is this quizzical scientific movement in which researchers are trying to quote unquote resurrect extinct species because uh, you know humans have made them go extinct. So uh, the passenger pigeon, the thylacine, the woolly mm -hmm. mammoth, uh, mm -hmm. a variety of others that 
um, these researchers are putting forth as a way of atoning for our ecological sins, as well as um, trying to make ecosystems productive where they've lost keystone species with these, you know, cloned and genetically edited close versions of extinct species that they love and looking at all the ethical ramifications of that. So that's, you know, this gives you a sense of my background. I try to bring art and media together with emerging science that needs ethical scrutiny. But I really started focusing in a new way on the climate and ecological crisis in 2017 mm -hmm. when I got a barrel of eco-anxiety in the face, essentially. I, um, as I mentioned, you know, I've always intellectually appreciated what's going on and I've been close to it in my work in terms of species extinctions and climate, but it became very personal and intimate in a way that I hadn't uh, expected and that I wasn't prepared to deal with because it happened to me in a, in a space of being alone. I was alienated. No one around me was voicing extreme eco-anxiety and grief the way that I started to feel it. And it was really provoked by my partner and I um, considering getting pregnant and then yeah. getting, uh, you know, very invested in that direction of our lives and also confronting what the data is saying, report yeah. after report and, you know, inadequate political action at such a widespread scale and just wrestling with the 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 actual um the, the heaviness of the responsibility of that act yeah, yeah. was um was arresting and then um, very anxiety inducing and so i decided to use my science communicator brain uh, to study myself and mm -hmm. and and ask questions about what's really going on here and how can I sit with these feelings in a way that's transformational, um, you know, that can help me cope. Um, what what's required here? What are the kind of key ingredients for dealing with ego anxiety? And it um, at very simultaneously, you know, this happened in this kind of beautifully convenient moment that the world started waking up to. The ecological crisis in a much more emotional way. You know, we, we start seeing the youth climate movement sprouting in 2017 before um, the massive marches that came in the, you know, 24 months that followed, um, led by Greta Thunberg and so many others. We saw um, a massive explosion around terminology like eco-anxiety, ecological grief, researchers mm -hmm. studying this, um, media platforms writing about it, op-eds being produced at nearly a daily rate, yeah. and um, documentaries coming out, etc. It felt like we were waking up at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, it was becoming an issue of the heart. Yes. And um, as a result, I've, uh, I've been turning that research that I've been doing into a book called Generation Dread, which is forthcoming. And before it's published, I've been processing some of this material through my newsletter you mentioned, which is yeah. gendred.substack.com. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that was a great introduction. You know, it's, it's interesting timing to have this conversation with you specifically, because I heard you share some of that in the webinar you did the other day. Um, because this is the very first, you know, I've had probably 75 post-Doom conversations over the course of the last year. And... Um, you know, as I mentioned to you before, we've been traveling, living this itinerant lifestyle for the last 18 and a half years. And now this is the very first post-Doom conversation since we settled down. We actually settled into Ypsilanti, Michigan. We've got a cute little 600 square foot apartment that's just in this historic house, two blocks from Depot Town, which is like the coolest, hippest place in Ypsilanti, and two blocks from my youngest daughter, who's 30, who gave birth four months ago. 
Right. And I had a huge transformation right at the beginning of this series, literally like a week before my very first post-doom conversation back in July of uh, last year, uh, 2019. I knew that Miriam and Trevor, my son-in-law, were wanting to get pregnant. And I was filled with anxiety about this. I was filled with like, oh my God, this is such a terrible time to bring a child. And, you know, I mean, I, I understand the antinatalist position. And, uh, and I was feeling like the anguish of like, what a, what a difficult life the child might, was, is most likely to have. And something happened. I don't know what it was. I call it grace writ large, but this wave of trust came over me. And I wept and I wept and I wept and I called Miriam up. I stopped crying first and I called Miriam up and I told her what had happened. And I said, the truth of the matter is I'm at peace with worst case scenario, which mm -hmm. in my mind is that our species goes extinct in the next decade or two or three. I think that that's possible. That may not happen, but I think it's possible. And I'm at peace with that. If this, the, the thought that came to my mind was, if this is the last generation of women to have children, would I really want my daughter to not have that experience? Mm -hmm. To have something larger than her to live for in these difficult, chaotic, challenging times? And that's when this flood of trust came over me. And so I called her, we talked, we both cried. And then I found out a month and a half later, literally three weeks after that conversation, she we were on Cal in California at the time she called and she said that she was pregnant. Now to what degree she may needed her old man's support. I have no idea. Um, but I do know that the last uh, two last three weeks that we've been here in Ypsilanti and I have been spending almost two hours, an hour and a half to two hours a day, uh, five days a week with my granddaughter. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing like having serious biological skin in the game to wake me up each day <laughs> to do whatever I can do, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, but the fact that I'm having this conversation with you and that, that, that whole issue was one that you and your partner wrestled with um, and was part of your own sort of awakening into this is rather, yeah. rather serendipitous. I call it sacred earth woo, you know, who knows how these things happen, but um, I'm grateful to be back here with her, with them, um, and now talking with you about this. It's amazing what you say because uh, a big part of the process is confronting how you would feel if society collapses in the lifetime of your child. I tend to not think about human extinction so much as societal collapse, but I think we're still dealing with the same amount of uh, overwhelm given the stakes that were, you know, floating through our minds and seeing the signs of and the writing on the wall of already. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that is, that is a, an enormously heavy process to uh, settle into and to find peace with and incredibly transformational as well. So that's, that's yeah. really beautiful that you had that reaction. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty life-changing, I'll tell you. I'm curious, what language do you find yourself using for these contracting, difficult, chaotic, challenging times? Yeah, posthume is useful. I might start using that one. <laughs> I use transformation. I use emergent possibilities. Um, I use sitting in the tension of uncertainty, um, embracing the the creativity that comes when you don't know rather than foreclosing that narrative mm -hmm. and saying that you do know it's going to be extinction and societal collapse when that mm -hmm. is a falsehood and um, acceptance as a generalized term is important. 
also resistance. I still bring that into the transformation. I don't think it needs to all be acceptance mm-hmm. as though yeah. we, we give into whatever gravity is presented. So those are some of them. Yeah. Share your story, but share it from the place of knowing that there are going to be people watching or listening to this um, who are going to tap into one or another aspect of that. Uh, so, Gosh, that is a lot, Michael. I will try. Um, I was raised in Toronto by a mother who is personally religious and spiritual on her own wavelength and a father who is aggressively atheist. <laughs> now, was your mom more new agey or more Christian or how was she, what was her mm-hmm. spiritual orientation? Anglican in a very private way. Okay. Yeah. Also likes going to psychics. Okay, good. Okay. Got it. So yeah. I guess a bit of both. Right. Okay. Good. And hardly ever, um, brought me into that, you know, and certainly didn't force any of it on me. I think I went to Sunday school a handful of times when I was a child and otherwise. And where are you in the birth order? Do you have siblings? I do, but they're all much older than me. They're all in their fifties. They're from um, my father's first marriage with his first wife. Right. Okay. Yes. So I was the only one in my house when I was growing up and my father was raised hardcore Baptist. He was preaching on the street cold corners when he was a kid and he turned against it and he ran as fast as he could and he has every single argument against organized religion you could imagine and um well let let me just jump in real quick because this is too fun so so, uh, as i shared with you before we started the recording uh, for 19 years now i've been speaking in every kind of setting imaginable literally atheist to evangelicals and i speak in as often to non-religious and even anti-religious groups including Uh groups of skeptics free thinkers atheists agnostics, whatever, yeah. as well as people on the, you know, sort of new age, new thought, integral world and Buddhist and Hindu and, right. uh, and tons and tons of Christian churches. And I've spoken to probably half of the Unitarian Universalist denomination. So just the wise swath. Mm-hmm. And um, I know well what it's like for people who are raised fundamentalist or evangelical or very strict religiously, however, mm-hmm. and then to, to turn and be uh, mm. almost enthusiastically evangelistic about the opposite of that. Yeah, uh, right. Because I've had a chance to speak and, and, and because I speak a science-based gospel or a message that's uh-huh. totally grounded in evidence, the atheists and the free thinkers are right there with me. I mean, there's just nothing they can argue with. Although they do balk, some of them balk for the first five minutes or so about my style, because my style is like a cross between Neil deGrasse Tyson and a Pentecostal preacher. Right. It's like, <laughs> I, it's like, I can sense the vibe. <laughs> You know, and so at first, you know, I look and sound evangelical like a TV preacher and I don't use notes and I'm all over the stage and stuff. So I'm very entertaining. So they, they like they bristle at that. But yet my message is like the, the inspiring side of science and the, to see them sort of warm up over the course of this. So at any rate, so I can tell your father if he ever watches or listens to this conversation that I can totally relate to where he's coming from. That makes sense. I will. Uh, yeah. Gosh, well, he, as a result, um, you know, he had the stronger opinions in the family and he raised me to be a a hypercritical thinker about religion from the time I was very young and uh, evangelical about ecology and evolution just in the same way that you are. Mm -hmm. I studied biology in university. I'm skipping over a lot there. That's fine. (laughs) But, um, you know, I started out thinking I'd be a scientist and one that was very motivated by conservation biology because of the mass extinctions unfolding. And um, David Attenborough was my guiding idol Mm -hmm. in 
helping me see that I actually didn't want to be a scientist in the field or in the lab, unearthing the mysteries of nature as much as I wanted to be the one narrativizing the overarching lessons. And yes. was, um, this in the, was this in the early 2000s, late 90s? When is this? I'm trying to place Yeah, this. this was in, well, I graduated from my undergrad in 2008. Okay. And, um, you know, 2004 or five was when I started my first science radio show at uh, my university campus station in order to start digesting this yeah. approach. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it hasn't failed me because it's what I've followed um, out of my genetics courses, for example, into the work that I've been doing uh, for my entire adult life. I did go to art school. I got a, I went to art school um, for my master's in an art media and design program. And I was the only scientist amidst, you know, painters and sculptors and video performers. And that was a really fantastic exposure. And it was what sowed the seeds for the deep interdisciplinarity in my work where I bring art and media and design into the way that I look at science, but also I try to bring in the critical perspectives of anthropologists and philosophers and sociologists to get mm-hmm. the, the humanizing element in there because science is not the subjective thing in a hermetically sealed lab over there. It's informed by culture and society, and it also, mm-hmm. of course, shapes society in turn. So um, th- along the way, you talked about people who I read that really motivated me to be who I am. I'd say Donna Haraway is a big person, um, you know, a critical feminist uh, thinker, mm-hmm. um, getting us to realize our hybrid identities um, and our, our post, you talk about post-doom, but we're also talking about being post-human, you know, seeing our mm-hmm. kinship with other species and uh, the ways that we relate to the earth in general. Um, she really pushes us to stay with the trouble of what our technologies are creating. And I've always found that incredibly yes. important. Um, yeah. I, I, in fact, I, let me just jump in real quick mm-hmm. because I, w- I w- would love to hear if you've applied your critical eye mm-hmm. to some of the claims of the techno-utopians or techno-optimists, because I, you know, Michael Shermer is a dear friend and colleague who is skeptic magazine and, you know, uh, he trains a skeptical eye to many, many things, but he's not yet. I'm encouraging him to do so because I don't think anybody on the planet would be more effective. But to to really bring the skeptical understanding to the secular religion of perpetual progress. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Technology driven. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. yeah. Definitely. It's. Um, I, I would say that's the the bulk of the the way that I've brought my kind of cultural understanding to science is to try and untease these techno-optimistic promises and look yeah. at them from a variety of perspectives that aren't just dictated by the powers that have certain vested interests in it, you know, exactly. the investors and the actual innovators who are being congratulated as scientists at the cusp of this state of the art, but um, all the rest of us who are also part of the, the dialogic process of, of allowing what science and technology into our life that we want. Right. Um, where were we? We were at Masters, right? Yes. Um, and I've worked I, after that for a while in, in public broadcasting, as I mentioned. Um, I've been hosting Canada's uh, national science show, The Nature of Things, which has been um, hosted by our legendary environmentalist, uh, David Suzuki, yes. for decades, um, as well as our national uh, radio show, Quirks and Quarks, on um, CBC Radio 1. We're just... Um, 
some elements of, of how I bring my kind mm -hmm. of hosting, uh, asking questions of scientists, straightforward, more, mm -hmm. as you said, Neil deGrasse Tyson, that kind of popularizing science content is, is an aspect of my work. But then when I do documentaries and I'm not just a host and I'm producing, then I get to bring in all the more yes. critical folds and, and craft a documentary, which I've done several times for the BBC, CBC, um, yeah. piloting something for NPR now in that vein. And um, eventually I did end up in my PhD in Copenhagen. And uh, that's where I've been investigating multidisciplinary perspectives on synthetic biology. So again, not just looking at what the scientists want to say about how we're shaping our world with genetically engineering um, organisms writ large or making biology easy to engineer, but really looking at how we can incorporate the concerns of everyday citizens and artists mm. and designers and sociologists and biohackers and people and who e care and about e this. And ecologists is one of and the things that's interesting. Uh, many people, especially those on the liberal progressive side of things, but not just, uh, are quick to point out from a science-based perspective that uh, genetic engineering, you know, the, the great fear of it uh, among many on the liberal side um, uh, is unfounded in terms of its negative impact on humans. They often, in my opinion, sort of dis discount or don't pay attention to some of the larger scale impacts in terms of the ecology and other species. But that's a whole nother topic that you know a lot more about than I, so I'd rather not go too much deeply into that unless you want to say anything quickly. No, I think we can keep going. But, um, yeah. I mean, I realize I'm now just listing off a uh, my resume of various places of various things I've studied, which is not really what you're asking. I think yeah, I, asking. I, well, no, th this is good though, but uh, yes, especially I would love to hear you say anything about how you thought and felt about our world, about our times and about yeah. the future uh, and then how that has shifted. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think when I was growing up, I always felt that I was connected to something more. I felt a sense of presence with, the world. It wasn't necessarily nature in a typical way of feeling overwhelmed by the presence of trees or lakes or rivers. Although that Do you was still live in Toronto? Enjoyable. No, I don't. Right now I'm in the Bay Area. Oh, okay. Um, and I've spent a lot of my life, my adult life, moving around um, to various places in Europe and around North America. So I've been gone for a while from Toronto. But yeah, I just, I, I had a sense of I guess that quantum entanglement feeling that there is a, a deeper presence beneath the surface. I remember feeling that a lot when I was mm -hmm. a, a child growing up and, and in a way, you know, retroactively, retrospectively considering what that was, I guess that was my sense of religion or something greater mm -hmm. without it being um, at all clear uh, to me at the time. And so the connection to the universe felt strong. I never felt too enveloped by this myth of the individual, which I think has mm -hmm. created a lot of our problems. Absolutely. I think um, it's part of why I chose to study natural history, ecology, you know, evolution, patterns of connection, patterns of ongoing transformation and change because they feel intuitively um, true and um, simply the life force of why we're all here and what we can do to impart change. So I've been um, feeling connected, I would, I would say, my mm -hmm. whole life, which I think really underpins why I do the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always, 
Well, as a child, I don't remember what I felt about our ecological future, whether sure. it was threatened or not. But certainly since becoming a, you know, a teenager and adult, I've felt the threat. I've felt the um, environmental message and its legitimacy. And then even though I studied conservation biology and was working on issues of extinction, I wasn't rattled. I wasn't made to not sleep, you know, staying up at night mm-hmm. um, about the concern. I was more intellectually concerned and certainly on board and going to climate marches and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. um, it was contained. It felt like it lived in a corner of my mind. And, um, and then, you know, things really started to change, as I mentioned, in 2017. And it wasn't just this personal dilemma in, mm-hmm. in my life around having a kid at all. It was a reflection of how, how much more aggressive the message was becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, the stakes were becoming humanized and, it, and people were describing, I mean, people like David Wallace Wells with his original mm-hmm. article on the uninhabitable earth, I believe that came out in 2017, like painting a picture of what this means for our lives in a day-to-day sense in the way that it'll affect how we live in our homes and our cities, have our relationships pan out, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the alarmism of, of the conversation set in my heart in a different way. And uh, that's when I started not being able to sleep, for example, yeah, exactly. about sure. it. Yeah. So I think it's just been a, you know, it's, it's a natural response. The water's getting hotter and Mm -hmm. the bubbles started boiling and Mm -hmm. before it was just a low simmer. Well, anything else you'd like to say about any, anything that's been particularly helpful or inspiring to you, especially in these last two or three years, but just in general. Gosh. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Jem Bendel. I mean, I've had a a very intense relationship to his work, I would say. Um, when I read the deep adaptation paper, I think my imagination of the future got sloughed off in an enormous way. Mm-hmm. And I became very focused on societal collapse for a while. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it was uh, not pleasant. Yeah. Certainly not pleasant. Um, I, I can remember many conversations that it directly impacted and I realized that I had to develop a capacity to balance competing narratives. And I don't think that Jem is espousing what many people think he is espousing. I think he's creating a space for people to process and hold pain and hold tension and, mm-hmm. and prepare and find community. Um, but there's a way of just reading that paper mm-hmm. and thinking that it's straight doom (laughs) and um, without a way out and um, you know there's all the complications of wondering you know is this person even qualified to say this Um, how how should I respond to this material etc but then it also felt in an underlying way very true (laughs) Mm -hmm, and um, and so that paper was very I would say it, it was foundational for my thinking in that it instructed me and taught me how to live with the tension of competing narratives right. because it was so oppressive when I first took that particular sure. narrative in. Of course, of course. And, and, uh, and, and, and I'm just curious, when you say yeah. competing narratives, like what would be one or two other narratives that you would um, value 
kind of close to equally, or at least that you would value to where you would see it would be competing with what you read in Gem? Well, ideas around um, really putting an emphasis on what we aspire to create, what we um, will invest in from a place of imagination and creativity and care. You know, once we've actually grieved, once we've sat in the emotions and allowed for them to transform us because we've gone all the way down, mm -hmm. which allows for that gift, for that release, mm -hmm. and you start to open yourself up to potentials again, mm -hmm. then um, part of that means being humble enough to know that things might emerge, you know, mm -hmm. and that we could have a role in bringing that forth. And these life-affirming positive aspects to guarding and maintaining a place for, for life to dwell mm -hmm. in a fashion that makes it worth sticking around for as humans, where it's not just miserable, <laughs> um, I would say is a competing narrative to what Deep Adaptation puts out in that paper. Yeah. And I also very much value that. And I yeah, think that course. it's the kind of nourishment that's required in these times. Yeah. But to do it in a way that doesn't completely just dismiss yeah. what a more deep adaptation perspective is doing. Cause that's also, I think not helpful. Um, we need the deep adaptation perspective too. Yeah. Um, and so that would be just an element of a competing narrative, but there's, yeah, that's there's lots. Yeah. Yep. And any other uh, people that you found particularly uh, uh, nudging or inspiring or helpful? Yeah. So many, um, a person who I look to very often is Caroline Hickman. She's a climate aware psychotherapist who is very good at shadow work. She really goes under the surface. She's really um, working with, with darkness and integrating um, um, anxiety and grief as a, as a signal of connection, as a signal of compassion and empathy for the earth and um, really points out why we need to, allow ourselves to feel all of that pain because if we don't then we're actually not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable right. to experience the vulnerability that comes with the territory of simply being a human yeah. ever but also especially in these times and when you're vulnerable you can then uh, connect with the vulnerability of you know marginalized people and okay. species that are uh, <laughs> terribly marginalized let's apply that word um you know the earth itself and that we need that connection in order to be alive and live meaningful lives. And you don't get the joy and the compassion and the beauty and the love without also being open to the vulnerability of intense yes. pain. Amen. So, yeah. yes. So this vulnerability brings us back to the humility of recognizing, no, we are a creature among other creatures. If we don't attend to the well-being of everything we depend upon, soil, forest, water, life, species, yeah. we're sunk. And so yeah. I appreciate her work also for coming to that vulnerability, mm -hmm. which is also a place of humility. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And there really just have been so many thinkers. I mean, you, you mentioned Dar Jamal. I also love his writing and love the end device and the perspective he brings to grief work in all of this. Of course, um, Joanna Macy is such a yes. pioneer for allowing us to, to apply that thinking yes. from a very early perspective with her work on nuclear. Um, I've been 
very much enriched by reading the psychiatrist, uh, Robert J. Lifton yes, right. and his studies of extremism and war and the, you know, just human ability to be evil. <laughs> yes. Um, Gosh, Renee Lertzman, a climate psychologist, close colleague of mine, who really brings a, an emotional intelligence mm. to uh, what it means to try and get people to budge the needle on the ecological crisis through sustainability leadership. Mm. Um, there are many, there are many who have really moved yeah. me for sure. We're now in a coronavirus era. I've only had, in fact, my, my post-Doom conversation with Jim Bendel was the very first in a coronavirus era, uh, just several months ago. And um, so three quarters or four fifths of these conversations were recorded pre COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually grateful because it covered on larger scale. It, it focused on larger scale issues of collapse and, and grief and all the rest of that. But now that we are in a COVID era and in a economic recession slash depression triggered by that, I'm curious, is there anything that you'd like to say in terms of how this these last six months have impacted or enriched or, you know, uh, in some way intersected with the work that you had already, because I'm assuming you've been working yeah. on this book for some time. So yeah. how, how has your work on climate grief and all mm -hmm. that come together in this COVID era? Well, it's really helped make the point clear and get buy-in from the public. That yeah, you don't have to argue in, collapse. <laughs> no, exactly. Our fragility is brought front and center. Exactly. We see that although the playing field is not equal and we are disproportionately affected based on levels of privilege, we're all in the field. It's not a level playing field, but we're all affected. Mm -hmm. You know, it proves our connection. Mm -hmm. It proves our um, propensity for injustice mm -hmm. and furthering it unless we consciously yes. get exactly. to the root cause exactly. of this destruction. It, um, the direct connection between something like a zoonotic pandemic and the overarching planetary health crisis that also houses climate change and deforestation and water scarcity and food mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. interruption, et cetera, um, is emboldened. We see that this is just a symptom of a much bigger um, life-threatening unfolding scenario. Yeah. And most importantly, it really helps us understand interconnected complex systems and how we can't just affect one on its own terms and have a kind of output. Simple systems have linear change. You know, you, in, you input X and you get out Y in kind of equal proportion. Mm -hmm. But complex systems have what is called disproportional causation. And this is something that I've learned um, a lot about from the work of Thomas Hummer Dixon, who's a complexity mm -hmm. scientist who also shapes my thinking quite a lot. Yes. And disproportional, um, Causation means that, you know, sometimes in these complex systems, you make a huge giant effort and then you see that it barely budges. Mm -hmm. And so other times a very, very small thing happens and then the whole system flips mm -hmm. in an irreversible fashion across mm -hmm. multiple cascades, which brings us to the hot topic of tipping points with the climate system, for mm -hmm. example. Right. And we need to get a cascade mindset of looking at the trouble that we're in. And that these things are disproportional and that we are ratcheting closer and closer to causing abrupt and irreversible shifts across several planes of existence. And the pandemic really allows us to make that argument yes. yeah. in a way that's much more convincing than yeah. it would have been without it. Yeah. 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 Amen. That's great. Well, 
I know that our time is short because you've got another engagement. I want to invite you to share anything that you'd like to in terms of if you were to, if, if you were to speak to somebody who's particularly troubled about our times, who's in their senior years, say above 60, mm-hmm. yeah. um, what would you coach them? How would you speak? Obviously, it depends on the situation, but just sort of in general, how would you speak to, to the elders? Um, and then how would you speak to a young person under 30 uh, who's absolutely terrified or troubled by our times? So anything you'd like to say mm-hmm. on either one of those? Sure. Well, with, with older people, I would ask them if they have people to talk to about what they're feeling. I mean, alienation and isolation is already just such a harm in older generations as it is. And I'd want to make sure that they know how to connect with people that can support them mm-hmm. and normalize their feelings and that they can just, you know, it's such a distributive experience of the pain when you connect with others over it. So that's step one. Um, I would want to know about their experience with grief and and how they've been going through that in relation to these times. I mean, maybe they're just starting or maybe they're coming out of a cycle, but we really need to process by going through multiple steps that could be repeating in no particular order, right? Around the shock and the terror and the anxiety and the fear and the grief and the acceptance. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, ask them about, ways in which they think that they could reinvest the energy that they've lost through that process into something that feels yeah. meaningful to them. Cause if a lot of the worry I think of older people comes also from just a terrible sense of guilt and, and shame yes. for leaving the earth in this state, of course, it's not on any individual, right. but just by being generationally connected. And so what is something that they can do to kind of release some energy around that guilt and shame in a way that is, um, healing and reparative, and it's yes. what Robert J. Lifton calls animating guilt yes. as opposed yes. to static yes. guilt. Yeah, you mentioned that the other day in this webinar, and I, that was a distinction that I wasn't familiar with, and I find it really helpful. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, there's, there's intergenerational connections they can make. They can support young people. They can, um, you, you know, reach out across divides in ways that feel nourishing for them and supportive, and then they're, they're acting to protect something beyond themselves that, um, you know, their emotions and, and, and pain is, is telling them is important to them. So mm-hmm. I would try to guide them through, through that kind of questioning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they're an older person who's feeling that, then that's going to be an easy thing to do because a lot of older people are shut off from that. A lot yes. of people are in various forms of denial. Exactly. Um, and I think that they would be, a, you know, just such a wonderful asset whatever they have to bring in whatever form Mm -hmm. for a young person, you know, it doesn't necessarily look that much different in, in terms of how we start. We want to know if they're connected. We want to know if they have community or if they're feeling just an incredible amount of weight on their shoulders because they're battling this alone. I meet a lot of people sometimes that, you know, it's not uncommon that I'll be giving a talk. This happened not very long ago um, at one talk in particular, I was giving an, a presentation about climate grief and then you know these conferences it was before um actually lockdown so we, i was at a physical conference and then through the conference app this woman messaged me a young woman and and said you know thank you so much for um bringing up the more than a billion animals that burned in the australian bushfires around new year's like i've i was up all night last night scrolling through 
media about that and I just could not take the pain. I, I have not slept because I've been crying all night about that. Right. Do you have, could you grab a coffee after this presentation? And I said, sure. And then I, you know, I didn't know who the stranger was. I went to the coffee stand. I waited for her and she came up and she was just shaky. She was trembling. And, um, you know, this is someone I'd never met before, but we had about one second of saying hello. And then she just burst into tears. Of course. And she really had never had that experience of knowing that she wasn't the only person who felt yes. this pain. She, she had been harboring it privately, even while working at an environmental NGO. She felt she couldn't talk about it with her colleagues because it's not, you know, it's not socially acceptable. It's not normative exactly. Exactly. to bring the emotional quotient into this work. And that was really powerful to see um, what that conversation of, of chatting with her about places she can connect with people over this pain, what that did for her and how she yes. felt by the end of it. So that sort of a thing, you know, right. just exactly. getting an, an element of how alone someone is in their feelings or how mirrored they are in their feelings. Yeah. And, um, you know, also I think we need to, we need to make a space for young people's rage. Mm, we need yes, to make exactly. a space for young people's sense of being abandoned. Um, we need to make a space to acknowledge the injustice and, um, you know, anyone, any, like, including me, I'm a millennial and I still feel that there's been huge injustice against our generation, but I still need to hear the rage of people younger than me because yes. I've been flying on planes <laughs> and I've been benefiting, for example, um, from the way that our world is carbon intensively set up. And, um, exactly. I don't get it at their level when, when you're 17 right now. And uh, yeah, so I would, I would want to create places for them to be heard genuinely um, and supported in that and, and find ways that older people can stand by them and say, mm -hmm. we're going to support you in this, even though we, we don't have the answer and we don't know where it's going. Right. Um, and, and I would talk a lot about the importance of grief and the, the fact that it can be um, an opening to a different version of yourself, one that's more alive, one that's more rooted, one that's deeper, one that's more connected, um, and one that's finally at the end of it. You know, not that you end, but once you've at least gone all the way down, able to imagine how this might not be just as bad as as it feels in the moment. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, or, or or yes, exactly that. Or in my experience, that if things really are in runaway mode. Um, what an incredible gift it is to be alive and to be conscious at this time and to yeah. still be able to be a blessing to others yeah. um, in, these, in these perilous times. Totally. One of the things that I um, am cautious about sort of placing too much emphasis on uncertainty is that we won't do the things that we really need to do to not be evil, like cap or preserve some of the you know the nuclear spent fuel rods or the nuclear power plants so we have as few meltdowns as possible or assisting trees in migrating assisting shrubs and plants in migrating we won't do that if we hold out hope that industrial civilization um, can continue into the future because we'll just procrastinate it so anything that you would like to say about that um, I would find value yeah I think we need to appreciate a difference between uncertainty as a blanketed value and uncertainty in the space of how we're narrativizing the concept of societal collapse and extinction. Because 
putting all of our hope and uncertainty to liberate us because there could be some emergent property, there could be some powerful leader that comes in, there could be a fantastic technology that we've you know, not yet considered that somehow scales quickly enough to draw down carbon at the rates that we need, et cetera. That kind of faith in uncertainty where we just sit back and say, we don't know what's gonna happen and all sorts of good stuff could still happen if that holds us back from being incredibly diligent and scrutinizing and critical and, and uh, you know, on the ground with all of our energy and attention for the things that we need to do to change, to work hard, you know, to give us any reason for hope in the first place, to be mm-hmm. courageous and brave enough to do the dirty work that needs to be done. If that kind of uncertainty holds us back from that, then that's incredibly dangerous. And it's just humans being lazy yeah. and it is hopium. And honestly, it's, um, it's something that needs to be called out whenever it comes up. But that is a kind of optimistic version of wishful thinking that gets disguised as uncertainty, yeah. I would say. And it lets us off the hook. Whereas what I'm talking about when I consider the value of uncertainty, it's simply to interrupt the foreclosed narrative that is so common when one first gets fragmented by an awakening to the severity of the crisis and their life becomes overcome with eco-anxiety and grief that all they can imagine is that we're going to go extinct and all they can imagine is that society is going to unravel within four to 10 years. Right. You know, which is something that is part of this awakening. It certainly was for me. Yes. And it's about being humble enough to step back and just see that if we do do all of that hard work, for example, we might change the outcome in some way. It's, it just means that we need to still imagine and get together and build solidarity and apply Uh, our capacity to be creative and rethink, you know, get rid of this horrific industrial system that we have, get rid of these colonizing forces that are still with us, um, shift from an economy that is based on, you know, just capitalism to a well-being economy. These things that are utopian to think that we'll actually achieve at some kind of totalizing scale, but maybe we'll get partway there. On At least this puts us in the right. Yeah. I'm not sure any of those are possible now, but it, nonetheless, that's the right direction to be working and, and moving in. Nonetheless, it's a dignified way to be a human exactly. and try to protect something beyond yourself. Exactly. That's bigger than you. Exactly. Um, that's yeah. all I mean by the value of uncertainty. It's to help particularly young people who feel like, God damn you for bringing me into this world yeah. when I'm literally going to be a human that goes extinct with the entire species. <laughs> no, that's so helpful the way you clarified that. I'm really grateful that you did that. I, I am feeling, um, you know, the adrenaline kind of coursing through my body in that way that um, when I tap into my, my deepest and darkest imaginings around the, our, the state of the world and what's happening to humanity, I can feel that that's activated. And I, um, it's an honor to really be able to talk about that with someone who works on it so much as you do. So thank you for that. And thank you for holding the space to, to go there. Um, I, what, what's the main thing that I want to leave people with is just that we're in this together and we need to talk about it more and we need to help people who are close to us become aware of their own defenses and gently disarm them 
and provoke a kind of compassionate response that is possible in the midst of this mess mm-hmm. um, by, you know, shepherding in a supportive way of waking up and facing the ecological crisis together mm-hmm. um, rather than, you know, taking out a tool and trying to bash it into someone's head. And, um, you know, that that's the best thing we can try and do right now um, because we both need people to wake up, but we need to do it in a way that lowers their defenses. If you would like to keep in touch, um, please go to uh, gendred.substack.com and sign up for my newsletter. And that's where this conversation is happening on a weekly basis. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.